0: continue this morning I have a request made to me this morning that at the end of our second session if you will please sit down for a little bit for somebody who is crippled to come by and say something to the church the second thing though is this that I have the utmost confidence that God, the Holy Spirit has chosen Mr. Elliot Alexander to be the next deacon of the church. So please remember him in your prayers. Let's pray. I'm the eternal and everlasting Father. King of kings and Lord of lords. Awesome. Majestic. Glorious. Powerful. Loving. Caring. Omnipotent. Omnipresent God. Father, we don't have enough words or adjectives to describe you. Our minds cannot even fathom the love that you display to each and every one of us. So we find ourselves... Consider ourselves, we're blessed that we're children that you chose us, all because of your grace and mercy. So, Father, we have gathered this morning to study a portion of your word. we recognize that the human mind is incapable of understanding anything that is spiritual, apart from the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. So, we pray that the Holy Spirit the perfect communicator. Will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this morning. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing now to our study on prohibition of idolatry and reason for those for the uh, prohibition. We're still in 1 Corinthians ten. Verses fourteen through twenty-two. Oh, by the way, I I told one of the people who listen online that I'm. I'll be sure, I hope I remember to say that. As some of you will have probably have guessed they had so much problem listening last week. Those online, in various states. They just, each one told me the same thing. They just, and I said, you know why, right? We're talking about demons, right? So at least I said, you can see a little bit of uh, what some of those people in Nigeria tell me when I go to church. And we we'll begin to deal with the demons. Anyway, we, for now, we are moving to something else. I'm going to read from verse 22. It reads, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, the message of this passage of 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22 that we have been considering so far is this that believers, Should avoid idolatry, since everything associated with idolatry is incompatible with the Christian faith. And it exposes one to demons. And so harms one's fellowship with the Lord. That message actually captures all the three reasons that we will be studying, or we have already studied some. We asserted, of course, that there are three general reasons the Holy Spirit provided through Apostle Paul about the prohibition against idolatry. We have considered in detail the first two reasons. Recall, the first is because of the uniqueness of the Lord's Supper as described in verses 16 and 17. Now this uniqueness is uh, conveyed in the significance of the elements of cup and bread used in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The cup, as we have stated previously, signifies sharing in the blessing of the death of Christ that includes forgiveness of sins, while the bread signifies belonging to the Church of Christ. Consequently, because of the uniqueness of the Lord's Supper, that believers partake, that indicates that they share the benefits of the death of Christ on the cross, and that they belong to the Church of Christ. Based on that, they should avoid idolatry. A second reason the apostles apply to the Corinthians, and so to all of us, in verses 18-20, uh, verses is, is to avoid idolatry, It's really the nature of the sacrifices that indicate the relationship between the offerer and the recipient of the sacrifices. Specifically, that such sacrifices offered to idols expose someone to demons. So this brings us to the third general reason. A third general reason for prohibition against idolatry Is its impact on the believer's fellowship or communion with God In other words, idolatry makes it impossible For the believer to have fellowship with God The third reason then is really derived from the two assertions of the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul in verses 21 and 22 of the passage that we are studying, A first assertion is that it is impossible to have fellowship or communion with God when communion and fellowship with demons exist. Or put it in another way, celebrating the Lord's Supper. And feasting before an idol is mutually exclusive. So a person cannot uh, do both. Now it is this assertion that is the point of verse 21. Now before we consider what Apostle Paul wrote in verse 21, we should note that the first assertion that we have made is a reminder of the teaching of the Lord Jesus on his Sermon on the Mount on the impossibility of showing the same level of devotion to two masters as recorded in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24 Matthew Matthew Chapter 6 verse 24 reads. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to one, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now on a surface reading of what our Lord taught in this verse. It may not appear. That his he teaching here has anything to do with the accession of the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul in First Corinthians ten verse twenty-one that we'll get to shortly. But it does. Now this is because the Lord was concerned with materialism, which we have indicated in a previous study that it is a form idolatry takes place. In our modern society, where most people do not worship physical idols as those in the ancient world did, or as some still do in some parts of the world today. Consequently, a person who is materialistic is idolatrous, and such a person cannot be devoted to the Lord in the same manner the individual Is devoted to material things Of course We should be careful To understand that the Lord is not saying That a believer Should never strive to make money But that the process Of making money Should never be such That God's word is ignored That's the issue In other words A believer should never Put money Or the process of making money ahead of his or her spiritual life. Again, a person could uh, not possibly show the same devotion to materialism as to the Lord. Now it is impossible to love the world that we live of, the world of of materialism, and love God at the same time, or with the same intensity. That doesn't happen. Now, this idea of loving the world and God equally is refuted by what the Holy Spirit states through James in James chapter 4, verse 4. James, James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, he reads, You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now all the same, it is our declaration that the first assertion of Apostle Paul Is that it is impossible to have fellowship or communion with God When communion or fellowship with demons exists Which is the essence of what we have in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 21 Now the apostle is emphatic in what he stated in verse 21 That the verse begins in the Greek with a Greek adverb that is an objective negative denying the reality of an alleged fact fully and absolutely in contrast to another Greek negative that is a subjective negative implying a conditional or unhypothetical uh, negation. In other words, the apostle uses the strongest, one that slams the door closed. In other words, there are certain things that will say, well, you know, if you twist my hand, uh, I will do whatever it is that you're asking me to do. Then, you know, in the Greek, you say you may say, I won't do it, but you use the word may. But if you mean it doesn't matter what happens on this planet, I'm not going to do it. Then you use the Greek word Ugh, or Ugh. Depending on how you phrase it. So, here we see that the Apostle used a very strong negative. Indicating that the Apostle says a fact that, that cannot be denied concerning fellowship or communion with God. And fellowship or communion with demons taking place at the same time or that both are mutually exclusive. Now the concept of fellowship or communion is given in two related ways in First Corinthians chapter ten verse 21. A first way the apostle conveyed the sense of fellowship or communion is celebrating the cup in the Lord's Supper, as we read in the first clause of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21. The first clause reads. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. See, drinking a uh, cup is the apostle's way of referring to drinking the content of the cup in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, this is because of the words uh, used, the words drink and cup. The word "drink" uh, is really, translated from a Greek word that literally means to drink. All right, that is to take in liquid. As it is used for the partaking of the Lord's supper in First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty-eight. First Corinthians. chapter 11, verse 28, reads, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Now the word really is used in connection with cup, when it is used leading to the expression, to drink the cup, that then means to submit to a severe Trial or death, as it is used to describe uh, what uh, describe what the Lord Jesus in His response to the request of the mother of James and John about their about her children. Uh, the Lord responded using that Greek word. I mean, what He said is recorded using that Greek word and the word cup in Matthew chapter 20, verse 22. Matthew, chapter 20, verse 22. And i uh, put your marker in Matthew. I'll go to one passage and come right back to uh, Matthew. Matthew, chapter 20, verse 22 reads, You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup? I'm going to drink. We can. They answered. Of course we'll make a little more comment later about what it is it means to drink the cup. But it has to do with suffering. And the word may also have the sense of to absorb or to soak up. The Greek word that means to drink can mean to soak up or to absorb something. As that's the way the world is using the imagery of the earth drinking rain. In Hebrews chapter six, verse seven Hebrews Hebrews chapter six verse seven. He says, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receive the blessing of God. Now land doesn't drink water. So we can say that absorbs or soaks water. Anyway, it is in the sense of to drink, that is to take in liquids by the mouth that the word is used in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 21. Now the word cup itself is translated from a Greek word that literally refers to a vessel for holding liquid and so uh, to drink from. Hence, means cup as in the giving of someone a drink for which the person will be rewarded in Matthew chapter 10 verse 42. Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. It is, and if anyone gives even a cup of cold water, to one of these little ones because he is my disciple I tell you the truth he will certainly not lose his reward the point here is not necessarily cold water it's just whatever you do no matter how insignificant you think it is for, for the benefit of somebody more so another believer if you do it because of your love for Jesus Christ you will be rewarded now the little cup can by metonym, metonym, that's uh, a figure of speech in which one thing is designated by the mention of something associated with it. Now, a a metonym would be something like White House. A White I mean, we say White House, that's a way of talking about the presidency. That would be a metonym. So, we're saying that the literal Cup can by metonym stand for what it contains. As for example, where cup represents wine in Luke chapter 22 verse 20. Look, chapter 22 verse 20 it is in the same way after the supper he took the cup saying the cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you so here cup represents wine because if cup is poured out it's not a physical uh, 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 vessel, but what's inside it? Now, figuratively, though, the word cup is used for suffering and eventual uh, violent death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is used in John chapter 18, verse 11. John Chapter 18, verse 11. John, chapter 18, verse 11 reads, Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What's the cup? His date on the cross. So, Cup figuratively can refer to suffering, especially that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10, 21, although uh, the Greek word means cup literally, but it's really used in the sense of that which is contained in the cup, what's in the cup. Now the word cup is associated first with the Lord in the phrase of what we're studying 1 Corinthians 10, 21, when it says, The cup of the Lord. And the same cup is then associated with demons in the phrase, the cup of demons. Now, the phrase, the cup of the Lord, refers to the cup the Lord gives in the sense of the cup used for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. While the cup of demons is a reference to the cup used. In the ceremonies That are associated With uh, demons Even though it's you know, they, they use it In their idol worship But it's really associated with demons Thus when the apostle then wrote In 1 Corinthians 10 21 You cannot drink the cup Of the Lord and the cup of demons too He meant to convey that a person Cannot drink the contents Of The cup used in the celebration of the Lord's Supper and drink the content of the cup used by those who sacrifice to idols in the worship of their idols. Now the pagans who sacrifice to the idols were certainly involved in drinking of wine as part of their celebration or as part of their sacrifices to their idols. Now we note this because when Israel got involved in idolatry with the golden calf, they must have copied other pagans, such as the Egyptians, in their celebration or sacrifice to the idols that they made that involved drinking, as we may gather from Exodus chapter 32, verses 5 through 6. Exodus 32 Verses 5 through 6. Exodus 32 verses 5 through 6. Exodus 32 verse 5 reads, When Aaron saw this... He built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So here they had some drinking in As a process of offering Sacrifice to idols So the point though is that pagans When they offer sacrifice To their idols Part of their uh, Communion or fellowship With their idols is a drinking Of wine Now although the pagans Believe that they were sacrificing To the gods The Holy Spirit Through the apostle tells us That their sacrifice is to demons. Therefore, when they drink or when they drank before uh, their idols as part of their sacrifices, they indeed had fellowship or communion with demons, similar to the fellowship believers have when they celebrate the cup of the Lord's Supper. Now, a second way the Apostle conveyed the sense of fellowship or communion. Is eating of bread Which is the first element really Of the celebration of the Lord's Supper Given though in the second clause Of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 21 Again it reads You cannot have a part in both The Lord's Table and the Table of Demons Now as we have stated This clause is concerned with the first element of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which is the bread that is eaten. Now we can demonstrate this by considering the words the Apostle used in our clause, so we can see it is talking about bread. Now the expression "have a part" is translated from uh, a Greek word that may mean to share, as it is used in the Lord. She is a sharing in our humanity in Hebrews Chapter Two, Verse Fourteen. Hebrews Hebrews Chapter Two, Verse Fourteen. Here is Since his children have flesh and blood, he too, that's Jesus Christ, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Now the word may mean to partake, as it is used in eating in common with other believers. As it relates to the Lord's Supper. In the passage we are studying, 1 Corinthians 10, we look at verse 17. 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 17. It is because there is one love, we who are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one love. So the Greek word is translated half part in our passage of main study, is here translated partake. Now really, uh, it is really in the sense of to share or to partake of something in common with someone else. Or to eat something in common with someone. Because you see that the word is used in our passage of First Corinthians 10, 21. Now sometimes we forget this because it's more or less a routine. Eating with somebody establishes some kind of fellowship. That's the importance of it to the ancient people. Of course, today it doesn't really matter too much to us. Um. Because of how people think. But in that, at that time, you take, for example, you, you see a stranger on the marketplace and you invite him to your house to eat with you. Well, as soon as you do that, you have bonded, you've had fellowship, communion with that person. Even if he's a criminal, if he came to rob, he will not rob you. They at least understood that. Because they have, that person has established a communion, a fellowship with you. So when people partake meal together, that's a way they show fellowship. Hence, of course, the early church doing that together. Now, the word table, is translated from a Greek word that means table, alright. That is a structural surface uh, on which food or other things can be placed. Now, it is used for the table upon which A meal is spread as in the description of what Lazarus desired to eat from the table of the rich man as reported by the Lord in Luke chapter 16 verse 21. Luke and hold on to that Luke Luke 16 verse 21 again hold on to that passage Uh, I mean to Luke so I'm going to go to Luke again it is and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table as he spread out of food even the dogs came and licked his sores now the word may refer to a place where money is kept or managed or where Credit is established. Hence really in a modern way means bank. As the word is used in the parable of the ten uh, minutes in Luke chapter nineteen, verse twenty-three. Luke chapter nineteen verse twenty three. It is why didn't you put my money on deposit? So that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. See, that phrase, put my money on deposit, may be translated give my money to the bank. Now, though, the, literally, the, is what the Greek actually says is give my money to the table. Give my money to the table. And <laughs> so you can see that the literal translation does not make much sense unless table is recognized as bank. Now the Greek word may mean meal, as it is used to describe what the Philippian jailer, in appreciation of his salvation, set forth before Paul and Silas. After the earthquake incident that brought that led to his conversion, as we read in Acts chapter 16 verse 34 Acts chapter 16 verse 34 Acts 16 verse 34 reads the jailer brought them into his house, and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Now the verbal phrase, set a meal before them, is literally, set a table before them. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 21, the Greek word then is used in the sense of a table upon which a meal is spread, or a meal is spread out. Hence, simply, the word just means a meal. Even though it literally means table, it can mean a meal. Now, Apostle Paul used the word table with the Lord in the phrase of First Corinthians 10:21 when he said, The Lord's table, the Lord's table. Now also he uses it with the demons because of the table of demons. Now the phrase lost table is one that is used in the Septuagint to describe the altar in the Septuagint of Malachi chapter one verse seven. Malachi chapter 1 verse 7. Malachi chapter 1 verse 7 reads, You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. So here you see altar is equivalent to table Now this notwithstanding The phrase the Lord's table Is used by Apostle Paul Here refers to celebration Of the Lord's Supper Where the Lord here refers to Jesus Christ While the phrase the table of demons Refers to food involved in the celebration of idols Now in the celebration of the Lord's Supper The meal consists of bread that is used. Therefore, we contend then that when uh, the apostle wrote in the second clause of 1 Corinthians 10, 21, you cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons that he was referring to the bread that is used in the celebration of the Lord's supper. Now when pagans sacrifice to their gods, Their meals will include bread and part of the sacrificial meat, eaten before their idols in their temples or even private homes or their private home celebrations where the names of their gods were invoked in the celebration. So anyway, by what the apostles stated about the uh, meaning of sacrifices to idols, the pagans' fellowship, they did fellowship their, their fellowship was with demons. That means they fellowship with demons. Nonetheless, because the apostle used the word table in connection with believers, then we, we can be sure that he was thinking of the bread used in the Lord's Supper. Now, that aside, the apostle is emphatic, very emphatic, regarding the impossibility of having fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with demons at the same time. So be that then as he meant, we have stated that the first assertion of Apostle Paul in First Corinthians 10, 21 is that it is impossible to have fellowship or communion with God when communion All fellowship with demons exists. In other words, it is impossible for a believer to have fellowship with God at the same time with demons. Now the apostle in effect is saying that a believer cannot worship God and be involved in idolatry in any form or shape. That's his point. If you worship God, if you worship the true the true Lord Jesus Christ, then you cannot involve yourself, or you should not really involve yourself in any form of idolatry. Something that the church has failed to this day to pay heed to. Now to make clearer what is really involved in what the apostle Says so in verse uh, verse twenty one. In order so we get the handle on it, we should recognize that the apostle meant to convey the impossibility of syncretism. Syncretism. Now that is a word or something. So. What's that? synchronic, syncretism. Those of you not seeing the board, S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. So somebody will say, what is that? Well, the best way really to answer this question is to review what we have studied in the past about the concept of syncretism. So I'm going to spend the rest of the this first half and most of the second half just dealing with that. Syncretism. Now the word syncretism is defined in the concise English Oxford Dictionary as follows. Well and I quote the amalgamation of different religions cultures or school of thought. That's in the end of the quote, the end of the definition so the earliest known use of the term was really in a political sense by Plutarch who lived between AD 46 to AD 120 he was a Greek philosopher and used it to describe the binding together or binding together of often divided people of Crete to face a common external enemy. The term is seen in the following quotation from Plutarch's work. And I'm actually reading from the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, volume 12, page 155. And this is what it has to say, quote, For although the Christians were frequently at faction and feud with one another, now, does that, just what I read, does it ring a bell to you as to say, nothing is new under the sun. Right? Because that just described what's going on in America. People at each other's throat. I mean, politically, of course, all that. And that's you know, because that's why he says, for although the Christians were frequently at faction and feud with one another, they become reconciled and united when a, a foreign foe attacked them. And you, you, you see, that plays out in this country too. In you know, spite of all the fighting in between them, somebody from outside attacked, they come together in a hurry. Anyway, Continuing with the quotation, it say, this they called Syncretism. Of course, the Greek is sugar criticism. End of quote. So then this term, syncretism, appeared again 14 centuries later in the work of Erasmus, who lived between A.D. 1466 and A.D. 1536. Now, he was really the Renaissance uh, humanistic scholar. That he used it positively, though, to speak of the coming together of desperate points of view. About half a century later, after uh, Erasmus' use of the word, the term was used by George Calixtus. Between 1586 to uh, 1656. He also was a distinguished scholar at Helmstadt. Now he used it to draw the uh, Lutherans and the Reformed churches together. So trying to bring them together he uses what? Nonetheless, from his time, the time really has become... Generally used in Christian writing in a negative sense of replacement or dilution of the essential truths of the gospel through the incorporation of non Christian elements. Now, this syncretism, according to scholars, manifests itself differently. In the modern western churches, they say it appears in the form of worship of materialism, whereas in uh, African churches, it manifests itself in the use of uh, uh, what they call the spiritistic power and protection. And in Latin America, they say it it appears in the form of the rituals of the night of the dead. And in Asian churches, that it appears in the form of continuance of untransformed ancestral practices. Now in this study though, we are using the term in negative sense to mean the incorporation into religious faiths and practices of elements from other religions resulting in a loss of integrity and assimilation of the surrounding culture. Specifically, we are concerned with practices that have been adopted from pagan world by Christians as part of the Christian worship or practice of which there are many. See, what we're saying is, when we think about the secretism, what we're looking at is how the Christian church has reached out this way and that way. And brought in some things that were not a part of the Bible. As a part of Christian ritual, whatever they do. That is not a part of the Bible. Now, I cannot emphasize it enough to you, as those who take the Bible quite seriously, that this you must do as a believer. You must stand on the the authority of the Scripture at all times, when it comes to practices. Because, as I explained to you, God continuously warned Israel when they were entering into the land of Canaan. You'll be surrounded by all these cultures. You'll be the only one, the odd man out, so to say. He said they don't take any of what they do. That's the same thing we are facing today. We are in such a minority, it's almost unbelievable, that there are very few of us believers. And yet we are surrounded. I, I, I mean, I know, like you hear me say that all the time. Everyone in the South is a Christian. That's what they say. But don't believe that for one minute. There are very few that are really actual Christians. And oh, you know, they go to church. Yeah, that doesn't make you a Christian. But here's the thing. We are very few and we're surrounded by masses of unbelievers. So what do we do? We either stand firm. To what the Bible teaches, or we go into syncretism, pull what they have and bring into the the, the local churches, which is where we are today. Now, in my judgment, as I've thought about this, because it's one of those things that just it bugs me in a way. I know some of times some people say, "Well, you you are the only ones that teach that." Are you? I mean. Or they say, you are the only church that practiced that Around here And I said, hmm Now is that a reason to Join in In my judgment it's not So as I thought about this And contemplate quite a bit Why is it that we keep Gravitating towards those things We know, we hear the truth We walk away from here We know it's the truth, but we have a way to justify it in our mind. He he cannot really mean that. He couldn't really mean that. I don't see it in the Bible. And we go off in order to justify everything we do. So, as I contemplated on this, in light of the scripture, I came out with two reasons why we do that. Two major reasons. The first one is that we Christians do not want to be left out. We don't want to be left out. In other words, can you imagine a a whole place? And everyone is doing the same thing, two or three people are not. Then we, we start feeling it's very lonely and so in order not to feel lonely we join in so that's one of the things that, see, that's the first reason we Christians get into this today now you, you know some of you reason as, how can it be that the rest of them are wrong and we are the only one right again we are not the only one that teach some of the things I teach anyway but we cannot be the only one because there are other people teaching it but they are still a minor, you know, minority so People will say, well, you know, because they are very few, therefore we must be wrong. And they start dancing towards it. So the first reason then I've come up with is simply that. We don't want to be left out, we want to belong. We want to be a part. It is lonely to stand out by the truth. It's very lonely. Very, very lonely. And some of you have, you know, run around people and we. Say some of the things that you say. And they look at you like this. What planet are you living on? And so that makes you. That happens in yes, your spirit. So that's the first reason. The second reason I came up with is this. We modern day Christians. Especially in the West. Do not want. Christianity with suffering. We do not want Christianity we suffering. And as I thought about it, I think about some of the things that uh, some of the evangelists, or at least one of them that uh, most of you know, that you support from this congregation, he told me in one of his tweets to, I think it's somewhere in Algeria, Morocco, the believers there woke up 3 a.m. to travel outside the city to a place they put a tent at 3 a.m. to worship, so that, they have, you know, if they worship any other time, the authorities will come up against them. They think at least most people are sleeping, and they do that. I just think, just think about it. Here, all it takes you is ten minutes or five minutes to get inside your vehicle and no one is arresting you. And some of you drag in here as if you are going to die. And some of you come just ten seconds before we start. Now, what's all that? It all comes down to this. We have decided that the Christianity we want is the one that has no suffering with it. That's the reason... We don't want to stand up to what we know is the Bible tells us. We do not want to suffer. And my friends, I don't know what Bible you are reading, but if you are reading the Bible that I am reading, and I think most of you are reading, you will discover Christianity is not a relationship without suffering. And I've said it many times. The Bible is very clear. It is granted to you on behalf of Christ. Not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for Him. That's what Philippians 1.29 says. So we are dancing around because we don't want to suffer. And my fellow believers, as this is always bothering in my mind, and that's why I keep making an issue out of it, is remember, we are all going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And God, knowing from what the Lord Jesus Christ said while He was on this planet, He is going to match you and, and me with those believers in those countries where they are hiding and trying to worship. Some of them ready to—I mean, some of them are thrown away. Some of them can't get a job because they're not whatever religion it is in that area. They won't give them a job. This, those, and yet they don't—they don't move in their faith. That those are those who are going to be matched with in heaven. So, the issue with us is syncretism. We are trying to put the culture together with Christianity. It doesn't work. And that's who, who, the reason we are uh, looking at this seriously. Anyway, syncretism, although not a biblical term, but it expresses a biblical concept. It exists. In local churches, in different cultures, because there is always a tendency for people to maintain their cultures, even after conversion to the Christian faiths. That's one of the reasons, what the things that the Roman Catholic Church has done as a, a big disservice to the, the name of Christ. Because they go to these cultures, yeah, you go, do what you do, just come on mass on Sunday. But no culture though really Is free of pagan practice Ever since humans Drifted from the worship of The supreme God Now this being the case Local churches often do not Recognize how synchronistic That they are A culture Of a given area Tends to Blind believers in that area That they do not recognize That some of their Church practices that they import into the local church are not biblically based. Now, it often requires influence of others, other believers from different cultures, to enable believers in a local area to recognize how a familiar practice may in fact be adoption of idolatrous practices. Now, I recall a story I read uh, that's something that happened here in, in, uh, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and this had to do with an African Christian who came to a church, and he was stunned to see that the church was celebrating Halloween, and he he was so disturbed. He said, "That's the what kind of, the kind of thing I did when I was." I wasn't saying that we were worshiping these things. Now I come here and I'm seeing Christians doing the same thing I used to do as an unbeliever. And so they talked to the church and then they went and did a serious investigation and finally realized, oh yeah, we're completely out of the way. We, I mean it's not in biblical. And so uh, they removed it. Now so my point though is there's no church that is not free that, is, that we can say is free from it unless everything in that church, every practice has been vetted by the scripture. Now I mean, a in point here is we in this church we used to have, as some of you might now know for a long time, we used to have this stable on the church building you see it in every, almost every church in this area but uh, God in his mercy through one of our uh, members and through, through a series of things, we come to recognize that's a symbol of Egyptian idolatry and so forth. And that's why He came down from this building. And some of you didn't know that. So you are well walking around and there are several things. We, we, you know, well, the thing that disturbs me is we keep wondering. There are several things happening in our lives. We don't know. We don't have an answer. And so most of, some of this, in my judgment, will be because we are in syncretism and don't realize it. We are walking around idolatry, we are practicing it, and we don't realize it. And that's what's causing some of our problems. I'm not saying all our problems, because every problem we all face is caused by sin. Because of the fall. It doesn't necessarily mean your, your own personal sin or so forth, but that's here. Yeah. So my point, though, is that it is easy to become synchronistic. Now it is so since it is easy, one of the things that we need to do is to show you from the scripture how easily people get into that. But looking at time, time for breath. After break we look at it.